0: On the shoreline of what was the ancient name which was Canaan and had uh, and they fought wars against the uh, the Jews um, whether they got there before the Jews or not who knows but the point is that um that they were um they were um you know the the ancient enemies of Israel under the kings so Hadrian feeling that by defeating Bar Kokhba, he had ended Judaism, and he had ended the Jewish people as such, he renamed it Palestina. The Romans didn't see Judaism, as it were, as a religion. They saw it as a nationality, as a people, as a nation-state, and it was one that they claimed no longer existed because of its defeat in the Bar Kokhba rebellion. He also renamed Jerusalem Alia Capitolina, and he put a, 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 a an idol, a statue of Zeus, on top of the temple at the Temple Mount. The temple had already been destroyed by the Roman forces of Titus about uh, maybe 50 years before that. This was one final rebellion. So thus you had Palestina became the name of the Roman providence, uh, that would be part of Syria um, and that would be named as such because there was a, this claim that the Jews no longer existed. Well, of course, the, the Jewish community of, uh, of what then became known as Palestina continued to exist and um, had various ups and downs over the next several hundred years, several centuries, first under the Romans and then under the Byzantines. Uh, they actually created a Talmud, it's called the Palestine Talmud. They adapted the name Palestine for their for their country. In the, uh, maybe about 25 years before the Muslim conquest, which occurred in the uh, 8th century or the 7th century, I believe, there was a brief period of independence against the Byzantines when the Jewish community centered around Tiberias at the time and, um, rebelled against the Byzantines with the support of the Byzantines' main rival in the region, that being the Sassanians, who were, of course, from Persia. Um, They actually achieved independence, which lasted maybe 20, 25 years. Eventually, the Byzantines were able to reconquer the region, suppress it brutally, I'll point out, and then about 20 years, 15, 20 years after that, Came the Muslim conquest, and the Muslims, who uh, after winning the battle of the Yarmouk Valley, uh, uh, under the leadership of Abu Bakr, who was the main uh, uh, you you know successor to Muhammad, they they were welcomed by the Jews with open arms. Um, The third Caliph Ali actually established, um, reestablished Jewish. uh, not sovereignty, but Jewish rights in Palestine, um, allowed the Jews for the first time since the Byzantine era to re-enter and live in Jerusalem, and uh, built a synagogue for the Jews, and that that synagogue, according to many archaeologists, actually is the, the Dome of the Rock, because the Dome of the Rock is unlike any mosque, and it has writings and letters on it that indicate that it was, in fact, a synagogue for the Jews. And that this was, region was established as a Jewish neighborhood and remained a Jewish neighborhood throughout antiquity and right up until today. So, that's a brief history of the term Palestine, which was resurrected by the British, formally, in 1920, when they established the Palestine Mandate, um, and you might even say that the original Palestine Mandate uh, consisted of both banks of the Jordan. It was um, it was uh, cis Jordan and trans Jordan. Trans Jordan today is the Kingdom of Jordan, <clears throat> and cis Jordan today is the State of Israel. So, <clears throat> it has been argued by some. That actually, pal, uh, Palestine is Jordan. In fact, one of the founders of the PLO in 1969, 1970, his name escapes me right now, um, actually referred to Jordan as Palestine, and Palestine as Jordan, and the people of Jordan as completely indistinguishable from the people of the other side of the Jordan River, the the Palestinian Arabs on the on the east bank and on the West Bank. So, you know, one could argue, and, and, and do so with legitimate historic precedents that uh, there are actually already two Palestines, Jordan and Israel. All right, so that's, you know, that's the, uh, the etymology part of the argument. The reality part is that under the Obama administration... There have been direct attempts to interfere in the politics of Israel, and uh, to, uh, specifically in the government of Benjamin Netanyahu. We know that in the last election in Israel, the Obama administration directly aided the uh, the Labor Party with the hope that they would they would um, take over from. Netanyahu. In other words, they meddled directly in the politics and in the election of a foreign country. Very much what um, Obama and some of his uh, immediate associates are accusing Russia of doing here. Uh, which, by the way, there's no proof that they did. But putting that aside. Um, the fact is that uh, money poured in and George Soros, who's often, who's an evil man and who's, Name often pops up in various settings whenever you have uh, mischief of this kind anywhere in the world where you've got people, organizations, or individuals who are trying to uh, move, uh, overthrow the existing order, if you will, and move their nations in the direction of um, what Soros calls a, quote, open society, what in fact is a socialist society. Um That uh, Soros was involved with financing the opposition to Netanyahu. That Israeli Arabs were brought into Washington literally to train as so-called community organizers. Very much what Obama was before he became president. um, And and to go out and try to uh, get uh, Herzog, who was uh, Netanyahu's opponent, elected. Uh, through uh, you know american uh, political means like knocking on doors and raising money and whatnot and that failed in a sense israel reasserted its sovereignty by electing netanyahu with an even larger majority excuse me and and thus you had interference by the obama administration in, in Israel's internal affairs. Um, the pressure brought to bear was to try to forbid Jews from living in Judea and Samaria, to try to prevent Jewish families from, from expanding their family, even, from adding units to their houses, to sort of try to ban communities from expanding, and with the ultimate idea that... Um, these communities would be evacuated and the region would be stripped of Jews so that another, a third, if you will, Palestinian state uh, could be created, that this was somehow an idea that would would, would develop into someone's strange idea of peace. Um, I don't think any sane person would think that that would be peaceful. Um, I think that it's it's something that whether conscious or not, would be an attempt to dismantle and ultimately destroy the state of Israel. Um, If you take a look at the map, I think you might agree, if you see the the demographics involved here. Now, the resolution before the United Nations is the kind of anti-Israel resolution that has been brought up at the UN consistently in various forms, Probably since the 19, maybe late 1960s, when an anti-Israel fever began to grip the United Nations. Um, let's not forget that originally the United Nations supported Israel. Um, Charles of the columnist, in fact, documents very nicely a column that he just published, which shows that the United Nations has become obsessed with destroying Israel in the past maybe several decades, that every agency of the United Nations is focused on destroying Israel, criticizing Israel. Um, He gives the example of the um, International Health Organization, which is a branch of the United Nations. Their main focus, their main public um, utterances and, uh, and, and releases focuses on how Israel is uh, cruel to uh, Palestinian Arabs, which, by the way, is really not true. But putting that aside for the sake of argument, the fact that they would put such focus on that when you have countries in the world, in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, and elsewhere, that are really suffering major health crisis, is a perfect example of how utterly deranged and biased the united nations has become and so these resolutions would be would would be would be passed and the united states traditionally acting as israel's friend would veto the resolutions in the security council and that would be that well apparently barack obama who we now know did not uh, veto the resolution that came up last week but abstained and thus allowed it to pass that the Israelis are now accusing Obama not only of abstaining with regard to this resolution but actively promoting it behind the scenes actively pressuring nations to pass it trying to actually involved in the crafting of the resolution which bans Jews from Judea, Samaria, and East Jerusalem which uh, calls for the dismantling of Jewish cities and towns in those regions as a prelude to a redrawing of the borders to create a third Palestinian state. And uh, just as a sidebar to this we may note that the original country that was supposed to present the resolution was going to be Egypt, the Israelis contacted the um, nascent uh, transition team of President-elect Donald J. Trump, and they asked for help. They asked if Trump would simply come out publicly and let it be known that he was not a supporter of this resolution. That's all. Just make a statement saying that he does not support it and that he would be against it as President of the United States, which Trump immediately did. Now, once that happened, the Egyptian President, El-Sisi, decided that it was more important for him, as the leader of his country, to develop a friendly relationship with the new administration than it would be to buckle under and do the bidding of an administration that literally has only days left before it finally leaves. And so, as such, LCC declined to submit the resolution. Um, And that, in a way, is an example of how already influential Donald Trump is on the world stage. I mean, we know that he's already had very positive influence on the American economy. We already have several major corporations. Today, it was just announced that Sprint would be bringing back 5,000 jobs from overseas. We've seen Carrier agree not to shut down its plant in Indiana. We've seen other examples. And also, in general, the stock market is up At least as of today, uh, because there is a sense that the new administration is going to be more pro-America, more pro-business. It's going to get rid of onerous regulation. It's going to hold the line on taxes, if not lower them. And this creates a better business atmosphere, which means that businesses may expand. New jobs will be created. New revenue actually will come into the government uh, because there'll be more revenue to tax which is a much better way of the government raising revenue than just simply raising taxes on existing businesses. a very regressive idea. Um, And there's a general feeling of confidence and exuberance, if you will, in the economy, thanks to Trump. Well, this is an example of where Trump's already had a positive influence on the world stage. But what happened, and this is now known historically, is that Barack Obama and his sinister team of insiders, were able to effect an end run around uh, Trump and Egypt by getting four nations to uh, submit this terrible anti-Israel bill. And those are Senegal, New Zealand, um, I I don't exactly remember, Venezuela, and there's a fourth one. All right, so the bill has now been passed through the United States did not abstain, and Israel is now being knuckled by this, the United Nations, which is its implacable foe. Uh, in addition, it's now uh, th- there's now a, a meeting scheduled in Paris in the next week or two by an international body affiliated with the United Nations that is going to seek to further strengthen this resolution, and maybe even slap sanctions on the state of Israel. You've got all the BDS people, you know, absolutely, you know, dancing in the streets, probably passing out candy. Um, and that there is concern that this organization may uh, may create and emanate another um, anti-Israel bill before the United Nations, which may be voted upon before Obama leaves office. And that Obama once again will abstain, um, will have the United States abstain, and uh, and this will mean that again Israel will be further slashed uh, by this outgoing and repudiated administration. Uh, the whole spectacle of a a president in a lame duck leaving office. Especially given that the other party has won and that they will be assuming power very soon, that they would be involved in anything like this is disgraceful. It's wrong. It is un- It is well. Sorry, it is technically constitutional, but it's certainly undemocratic. And that uh, you know, even though the days are dwindling away, we face some very dangerous and perilous couple of weeks. I mean, this weekend is New Year's. After that, Obama has maybe about two more weeks, two and a half weeks in office. Who knows what he might do? You know, we've already seen that he's increased the regulatory state. He's already uh, committed, I think it's something like $75 billion more in spending to, uh, to support executive orders I mean, this is a, you know, he's releasing uh, convicted felons who have been involved in violent crime through the presidential pardon and commuting sentences and reducing sentences. You know, it's not so easy in our system of justice, nor should it be easy, to, uh, to get a conviction and to get someone off the streets and to have Obama use the executive pardon power to simply erase that is a disgrace it's not as bad as bill clinton who actually used the the pardon power to to enrich himself and to get money donated to his library and to give a pass to his own brother and to hillary clinton's two brothers and other family members who were involved with crimes um, you know, he used it for personal gain. It was just pure and pure unadulterated corruption, which, of course, is the legacy of the Clintons, in my opinion. And, of course, Bill Clinton also, by the way, had he was issuing pardons right up to the very last day in office. In fact, that morning that he was to go to the swearing in on January 20th, 2001, he was issuing pardons that morning. And when George Bush after being sworn in, arrived in the Oval Office, he found pardons still piled up on Bill Clinton's desk that had not yet been sent out or signed. I mean, so talk about, you know, abusing a a constitutional power. But in the case of Obama, these pardons are more ideological than they are personal. And as such, perhaps they're even more dangerous but for him to be stepping out on the international stage and kicking Israel in the, you know, in in the proverbials uh, just before he leaves office, should tell us everything we need to know about Obama, frankly, and about the people that surround him, his ilk. Their obvious hatred of the state of Israel, their attempt openly and brazenly to undermine the state of Israel. John Kerry's uh, delivery of that speech yesterday with that phony British accent talking about, you know, Israel could either be democratic or Jewish, but not both. What the hell did he mean by that? Um, This is more a systemic question than may meet the eye at first glance. It is a hatred of Israel because of two reasons, and it's the same two reasons that are why the left hates Israel. The first reason is because Israel actually is a relatively democratic state with a a capitalist system and a system that has become more capitalist in the administration of Benjamin Netanyahu. They respect the institutions of freedom, the right of the individual, private ownership of the means of production, property, uh, the right to pursue happiness, the, you know, life and liberty. All of the ideals and principles that have made America great. Israel has embraced those to a high degree, not as high a degree as America, but Israel's not America. Israel is, is, is its own identity. And secondly, their hatred for faith, their hatred for um, religion that believes in God, in a spiritual side of existence in the fact that a creator of the universe that is not part of nature that is supernatural that exists outside of man that is beyond in a sense the ability of man to manipulate that this god created the universe created mankind in his image and gave the laws gave was the lawgiver. You know, gave the Torah to all of mankind through the children of Israel. This is what Judaism is, and they despise that because they want to replace God and God's immutable laws with uh, man's, with socialism. This is, they have this incredibly moral and superior attitude about their rights as so-called enlightened people to recreate man, to recreate the world, to, re, to establish an earthly paradise, a, a utopia. And so they hate Judaism. And by extension, they hate Christianity. They probably even hate Islam to a certain extent, um, to the extent that Islam, but Islam is a hybrid. I mean, I think Islam is both a religion, but it's also a, a political system that mirrors the communist idea world control, utopian control of the planet under one rule, which is, by the way, the state of Israel as its own entity. Whether or not the people of Israel agree, the state, the very existence of the state of Israel rejects that principle and accepts and manifests the idea of the sovereign nation-state in control of its own life, its own culture, its own religion, its own language, its own destiny, and operating in the interests of its own people in their quest to preserve and protect and defend those institutions. They hate that because Obama and his friends are interested in world socialism. They're interested in world order, ultimately. That's why they have engaged in policies over the past eight years, that have deliberately weakened our culture, have deliberately dumbed us down. They advocate schools and education system that dumbs down our children with the Common Core curriculum, with look-say readings so that they're semi-illiterate, with uh, the, the stripping away of, of, uh, of lessons about how the Constitution works, lessons about American culture, replacing them with a lot of gobbledygook about the world order and uh, the idea that, um, you know, that, that they're all a bunch of psychiatric cases, right? They have dumbed down our business community and our ability to be sovereign individuals economically with onerous taxes and with onerous regulation against business, all done with very vague and totalitarian language that can be twisted and turned by those in power. They have weakened our dollar. They have weakened our ownership of property. They have weakened our culture with their assaults um, and with their pushing the envelope in Hollywood. They have weakened our language. And they have weakened American, the American ethos with uh, a- a- an increase in immigrants who don't share our values. I'm sorry to have to put it so bluntly, but the fact of the matter is that <clears throat> that Muslims do not share our values. That doesn't mean that they may not come to share our values. I hope and pray that they do. <clears throat> and I support their right to be Muslims in that context, just like Christians and Jews were able to do this. But, uh, but lessons have indicated that that's not so easy and that there is a, uh, there is a strain within the Muslim community This is one that has been identified by Harvard professor Alan Dershowitz, I'll point out, where it's not even an unwillingness to assimilate. And when I say assimilate, I don't mean lose your identity. Um, But there is an insistence that the host country conform to who they are rather than the other way around. In other words, they're not loyal and they're not... They're not, you know, willing to play ball uh, in, the, in the host country that takes them in, that's, that protects them, and that gives them rights. Now, again, I, I realize I'm generalizing, and I have had on my program in the past Dr. Zudi Jasser, who is a very, very progressive Muslim leader in the true sense, who is very pro-American, and who actually warns us about the, the Sharia and Jihadist element that exists within the Islamic community and what that is. Barack Obama has furthered that. And so it shouldn't surprise anyone that he is using the last drop of his uh, tenure to uh, stab Israel, to try to undermine the state of Israel, because Israel represents both of those ideals. Uh, You know, democracy in the form of capitalism and freedom, and faith in the form of Judaism, which uh, by extension means faithful religious Christianity. And so Israel is at the front line. It's the canary in the mine shaft in terms of of an outpost of freedom in the world, And by by basically trying to stab it and trying to stifle it, Obama and his buddies are showing their true colors. Anyway, this is Chuck Morse. You're welcome to join me. I'm live right here at WMFO, 91.5 Medford, Boston, Tufts University, bringing an alternative voice to the Tufts community. Come on down, 855-915-9636, 855-915-9636. What is on your mind this afternoon? Let me see if I can do an electronic, um, uh, let's see, uh, a, um, a a public service message. i
1: Theft Orchestra and you're listening to WMF.
0: This is a test to find out if you know it all when it comes to children.
1: Name one of the leading killers of U.S. children age 1 to 13. What's the best way to protect children in a car crash? At what age and size should a child start
2: using
0: a booster seat?
2: Don't assume you know it all when it comes to car seats for your child. Go to safercar.gov slash the right seat and know for sure. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. The Luma, the
0: loud band, you free,
1: oh,
0: and we're back. Sorry about the little bit of overlap there. Again, I'm, I'm experimenting with the, the mixing board here. Um, you're welcome to join the program. Chuck Morse here at WMFO. 91.5 uh, a.m. at Tufts University. Uh, 855-915-9636 is the number. 855-915-9636. So... That is my analysis of this feckless, traitorous uh, attack by the um, Obama administration on the state of Israel in their final days. It's not going to work. Israel is not going to in any way alter or change their their trajectory because of Obama, or certainly not, or, or because of the United Nations. Um, the Trump administration has made clear that they are going to stand strongly with the state of Israel. They have uh, included in their ranks uh, David Friedman, who is a—he's been around for a while. He's a a solid conservative uh, Jewish activist and Israel supporter. He has uh, made reference to moving the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And I think that only Donald Trump would have the nerve to do that. This was a, a mistake that was made back in the Truman administration when you had anti-Semites in the State Department uh, refused to recognize Israel, uh, refused to recognize Jerusalem for entirely religious reasons. Um, you have uh, David Friedman rejecting the two-state solution. All right. So that that brings us to that very topic. What about the two-state solution, so-called? Look, I'm here to express my opinion as a radio talk show host uh, with an outreach to the Tufts University community. And in that capacity, I am going to state that opinion unequivocally. And that opinion is that the so-called two-state solution is dead, if it ever really had a chance to exist. There is not going to be another Palestinian state. There should not be another Palestinian state. John Kerry spoke about um, dismantling Jewish cities and towns in a region that he hopes to create another Palestinian state, that's not going to happen. The facts on the ground, as the Israelis like to put it, indicate that there are now, I think approximately, three hundred and fifty to 400,000 Jewish families living in the area that is uh, on the other side of what's called the Green Line in Israel. Those are the armistice lines that um, carved out Judea and Samaria in 1949, when Israel signed a, an agreement with, or a ceasefire agreement, with the King of Jordan. By the way, back then the region was called um, West Jordan, not the West Bank. Um, that uh, the Palestinian Arab population of that region is dropping. Palestinian Arabs are leaving The region. The Israeli Jewish population is growing. In fact, the Israeli Jewish population in that region is one of the fastest growing populations in the world. And it's a combination of of religious people who believe in God's mandate uh, and command at Sinai for the Jewish people, the children of Israel, to take possession of that tiny swath of land that exists between the Jordan River and the Great Sea, the Mediterranean. As a birthright land, and as a land that, uh, by doing so, they would uh, elevate themselves spiritually, and serve as a light unto the nations, as a sort of a, a priestly class, a caste, uh, that would set an example for the entire world, and inspire the entire world, with their higher level of, of ethics and faith, uh, toward eventually the coming of a miraculous event, a messianic event, which, of course, how that happens, how that's defined, the nature of that, is something that, frankly, is beyond, and should be beyond human comprehension. That is a matter that, uh, that resides only in the mind and the will of the creator of the universe, the Lord our God, blessed be he. We can only hope that um, that it happens, and we can hope that we take the necessary steps, personally and politically, to ensure that it does happen. Personally, that means being a better person, standing up for the right, being involved in politics, not, not withdrawing. I think some Christian fundamentalists make the mistake... They've been fooled into thinking that they just have to withdraw from politics with the hope that this just somehow happens. You have to be involved in politics. You have to stand up and identify good and evil and stand up for the good. And by doing so, you have a positive, rippling effect in the world. Uh, On the political side, it is the fulfillment of a very modest an appropriate um, mandate that the children of Israel take possession of that tiny, inscrutable little piece of land that exists between the Jordan River and the Great Sea, which exactly is the borders of Israel today. Israel today exists within that region and nowhere else. It says from the north, from Dan to the north to Beersheba to the south. Well, Israel today controls the Dan in the north. It's, it's, a, it's called a tell, it's an archaeological site near Matula, which is in the very northern tip of Israel's panhandle. And Beersheba in the south is one of the world's oldest contiguously occupied, uh, occupied cities. Uh, It exists as a modern city, and its ancient city is right there as well. Israel is, that is the southern part of Israel. The only part of the state of Israel today that actually is not part of of the mandate that God showed Abraham is the stretch of desert that goes from south from Beersheba down to the Gulf of Elad. It's called the Negev which is the Israeli word for desert. It's just basically an empty piece of land. Other than that, Israel exactly exists in the biblical borders that God um, commanded uh, Israel to to live in. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, by the way, that um, this Hanukkah season, when the Jewish people celebrate the fact that um, that the Judeans or the Jews were successful in liberating themselves from the Syrian Greeks; that uh, they they proclaimed their independence uh, under Judah Maccabee, the Hasmonean dynasty the first in the Hasmonean dynasty. They lit the menorah, which lasted eight days, and they were able to consecrate the temple and be independent again to create what's called the Second Commonwealth. The First Commonwealth, of course, was the Davidic Empire and the time of the Judges. And uh, Palestinian intellectuals, I'm not sure who it was, I think it was someone at, uh, um, at a Palestinian uh, institution of learning in, in, uh, in uh, Judea and Samaria. He, they referred to this as Israel occupying Palestine in other words, Judah Maccabee has successfully occupied Palestine. Well, I already got into the question of the term Palestine at the beginning of the segment, so I'm not going to rehash that. But what I'll say is, and I was thinking about that, I was actually talking about this with my, my teenage daughter. And the fact is that, in, 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 in using that sort of, of lingo, Israel has occupied Palestine, I think five times since the beginning of man the beginning of human recorded history. The first time was when Abraham, the Aramaean our ancestor was heard a voice, heard God pointing him in the direction of the land that God would show him. You know, I I don't have the exact quote in front of me here, but it was go up from your father's house leave idol worship, leave the cosmopolitan existence of, of Babylon, of, of Ur-Kazdim, and go up and, and take possession of this tiny land. And Abraham did that. He and his family went up, they went to what actually the indigenous name for the land was Canaan, and they established the first sovereign Jewish state or Israel state, Israelite state I think Abraham was before the term Israel the term Israel would only come into existence with, with Jacob who took on the name Israel after his uh, struggle with the angels but uh, he was to take possession of this land and create a holy people and uh, to serve God and Abraham did that uh, that was the first occupation if you will Uh, The second occupation was that when Jacob, who was also called Israel, went down to Egypt during the famine, settled his family in Egypt because his son Joseph had become prime minister, Uh, a generation or two later they became slaves of the Egyptian pharaoh. Of course, we know the story. Of how Moses led them out of slavery, crossed the Red Sea, accepted the Torah at Mount Sinai, wandered in the Sinai region for 40 years, eventually came to the land. Now at that time the borders of Israel are clearly delineated in the Torah. Because two and a half of the ten tribes, of the twelve tribes, wanted to stay behind they didn't want to go in the land. In other words, they didn't want to cross the Jordan River into the Holy Land. They wanted to stay on the uh, east bank of the Jordan because they liked it there. But they also wanted the their fellow Israelites to know that they were loyal to Israel. They were not trying to, it was not a, a civil war. And they proved that loyalty by agreeing that they would cross over with them and fight with them. To, to create the the Commonwealth, and then they would go back over the Jordan and live with their brethren west of you know in the east Bank. so when Moses died having never left entered the land, his successor Joshua, as we know from the the book of Joshua, crossed the Jordan, he uh, conquered Jericho and proceeded to his forces proceeded to establish the Commonwealth of Israel. The Palestinian Arabs might call that the second occupation of Palestine. (laughs) I mean, I guess using their lingo. Uh, That, of course, led to the period of judges, eventually the period of kings, uh, the period of Solomon, where they reached the largest extent in terms of empire. And by the way, Solomon, we should note, had a very positive and, and a good relationship with uh, Phoenicia, which was Canaan, or even you could you might even say they, they might have been the precursors to the Palestinians. They lived in what is today uh, Lebanon on the coast. And that Hiram, the king of Tyre, one of the big cities there, actually assisted uh, Solomon in the building of the temple and in the building of a modern navy, and of developing a port at Elat, and of, of creating some of the modern administration of an empire. And so they actually uh, had a friendly relationship, they traded with each other, uh, they worked together. Uh, that was the, uh, you might say, the part of the second empire. Of course, after Solomon died, the empire divided into two squabbling sides, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. Israel was carried off into captivity by the Assyrians. And maybe about 100 years later, Judah lost its sovereignty and was carried off into captivity by the Babylonians. And so you had the, the exile. The exiled Jews living in Babylonia and maintaining their identity were to return when the Persians or the Medians under Cyrus the Great um, was able to subdue and conquer the Babylonians and he issued an edict which is republished in its entirety in the book of Ezra commanding the Jews to go back to their homeland reestablish their city of Jerusalem reestablish their temple and create a Jewish state. And by the way, at that point they were using the word Jewish or Judean, as it were. And so you had Ezra and his military lieutenant, Nehemiah, go back and reestablish Jewish sovereignty. You might say the Palestinians could say that was the third occupation of Palestine. <laughs> I guess using the lingo. Uh, They they were loyal to the Persian emperor, but they maintained and developed, you know, a uh, sort of an autonomous region. And it was that region that was eventually conquered by Alexander the Great, who was friendly to the Jews and who recognized Judean autonomy. And then his Greek lieutenants, after he died, who, who took over and divided his empire, Israel would first be ruled by the Ptolemies, out of Egypt, and then by the Seleucids out of Syria. And that's where the Antiochus comes in. He was the Seleucid emperor, and he tried to to uh, destroy the Jewish people who, who were the majority there and who were indigenous to the region. Uh, he tried to take away temple worship. He replaced the temple with a statue of himself. He allowed for a certain Greek... Uh, practices like nude wrestling in um, in the gymnasium, which was something that offended the uh, sensibility of the Jews and of the rabbis, and and other Greek practices. Uh, there was a rebellion. Judah Maccabee and his brothers and his father Menates rebelled and fled to the mountains and fought a a, a, a sort of, I guess you might say, a guerrilla war against the superior forces of the Greek-Syrian Empire that went on for several leaders until eventually, under Simon, the youngest of the brothers, they were able to obtain full sovereignty. Judah made a deal, by the way, with the Romans at the time, who were emerging as the world power, and sent them a gift, and uh, and which some say was a mistake, of course, because it led to the eventual destruction of the Commonwealth. But either way, Uh, he was able to start the ball rolling, and the Commonwealth of Israel was reestablished, or what was called Judea, under the rule of the Hasmonean dynasty. And so you had the third occupation (laughs) of Palestine by the Jews. Eventually, the Hasmonean dynasty would be gradually, step by step, taken over by the Romans, Uh, who dismantled it piece by piece by putting various Hasmonean puppets on the throne. Eventually Herod went onto the throne. Herod had been an Idumean. His father had been forcibly converted to Judaism by John Harkinus, which was one of the great mistakes of Jewish history and one of the few times in Jewish history that a Jewish leader did try to forcibly convert people. Um, And he was vengeful. He, was, he did maintain Jewish sovereignty under Roman tutelage, but nevertheless, he was very cruel, and it was a very difficult time for the Jewish people. He actually, his rule was the time that uh, Jesus was born. And so eventually, the Romans encroached further and further and further and eroded Jewish sovereignty until finally there was the rebellion, what's called the Jewish Wars, by Josephus, the historian. And there were three year, three or four years of complete sovereignty, which was followed by the utter destruction of the community by the Roman forces of Titus and the destruction of the second temple, which had been rebuilt by Ezra on the, on the orders of Cyrus. And so Israel once again lost its sovereignty utterly. Uh, the Jewish people continued in the region, Uh, There was a second rebellion under Bar Kokhba about 100 years later. That was put down very brutally. And Hadrian renamed this state Palestine. But nevertheless, the Jewish presence continued. Many say there was a brief period of independence under the Byzantines. You might say, again, the Jews occupied Palestine before the ultimate takeover by Muslim forces and the gradual decline of the Jewish community, which, of course, never disappeared. There was always Jewish indigenous presence in the region. Uh, in fact, it's been said that Hebrew was the language of Jerusalem, uh, even up to the time when the when the British arrived under General Allenby. Uh, there were always Zionist um, discussions. Napoleon talked about Creating a Jewish state in Palestine during the period of um, of which the French occupied Egypt um, in uh, 1800, and he actually tried to invade in the Battle of Accra and was defeated. And um, who's here, Chris? Yep. Hi, Chris. Hi, Chris, what do you have coming here? Come, come on over. What do you What do you have coming What do you have coming up? Oh, four. Thank you. Yep. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, there we go. Okay, I did it right. No, that's a phone. No, that's oh, that's a phone. Three, so, three. All okay, way to the left. there we go. Which one is it? I think it's. There we go. All right. Okay. Can, hear Can I hear you? I can't. But um, one, two, three, that. four, and I'm up. Okay, go to three. Go to three. And go up. Up and How about now. There you go.
2: Okay, we got. Um, Two hours of freeform radio uh, kicking 2016 out with a blast.
0: Cool. What do you got? Anything particular? Uh, what are you listening to these days?
2: Anything and everything.
0: Anything and everything. Yeah, and we what, go
2: from the '40s to uh, the '2010s.
0: What? When you walked into the studio, did you have any particular tune that you wanted to hear? Uh,
2: me? Well, no. <laughs> just, uh, what my listeners usually tell me what I, what they want to hear. So,
0: so you swing open the phone lines. And you need to get a call.
2: Exactly. Phone lines, Facebook, and uh, let's see what else. Oh, uh, text, text, and so people
0: text you. Yep. So when you, I, I don't mean to put you in the spot. I just yep, no to Because te- I, you see, I'm completely inept on these matters, but. Um, <laughs> You um you, then you have your Facebook page up. Yep. People text you and you read the text. Yep. And then you announce and then you're able to go to do you do it through um
2: I do it through Rivendell my computer the like 30 CDs I bring in and sometimes so you, I'll run out and find a record and play that.
0: So you really know how to do this, don't you?
2: I've been here since 2001.
0: Oh okay, so you're you're a veteran. <laughs> yep. Community guy. <laughs>
2: exactly, yeah. Now
0: do you the show obviously streams live, do you do a podcast?
2: No, I don't do a podcast. I'm not that technical yet.
0: Uh, see, that's where I actually do something. I don't know anything about the board, but just I, I, I'm actually able to go to the, um, the Spinatron, download the podcast, yep. put it up on my Podomatic page, which then goes on the iTunes and Stitcher. And then I send it out on my blog site to my 25,000 uh, social network friends. Excellent. Well, so
2: I, sometimes I barely have enough uh, time in the day just to do my show. So that's, uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> but you and I should collaborate sometime. Just you can show me how to run the board and exactly. do all these yeah. wonderful things, and I could show you how to create podcasts to get out, uh, get Sounds the show. up.
2: All right, Chris. Okay, so I'll be coming up soon, folks.
0: All right, thank Thanks, you, Chuck. All right, all right. So Chris is next. He'll be at the top of the hour. I'm just noticing that we're reaching the end of the hour, so I'm going to wind up my little history lesson here. Um. And just uh, point out that um, I think that I've illustrated what I think are the um, the political and even you might say the spiritual motivation behind the Obama administration stab in the back of the state of Israel. Um, I talked about how Israel represents what I would contend the Obama administration loathes and their people around them, and that is a sovereign, independent, uh, you know, democratic capitalist society and a religious state that has a religious mission i think i outlined what both of those are so um, we'll leave that right there where it is and i'm going to try to see if i can actually set up the board for chris Um, and uh, so let me just part by pointing out that um, my books are available at amazon.com Just put my name in the server, Chuck Morse, M-O-R-S-E, like Morse code. And you will see them come up. I've written over 10 books. I've got a new book. The manuscript is already finished. It's called The Age of Trump. Uh, That is not available yet. I have a a literary agent who says that... He says it's the best thing I've written, and he thinks it has commercial potential. So it's a very difficult business, but he is shopping it around to... uh, to uh publishers and hopefully it'll be published sometime soon uh maybe uh, within the next three months or so if it's not published at any by that point by mid next year i'll probably self-publish it most of my books are self-published some of them were published the biggest book i wrote that was published by wnd press is called the nazi connection to islamic terrorism all of my books are available at amazon.com You could check out my blog. You could check out my Facebook page, where this program will be archived as well. Uh, I'm actually recording it right now live on Facebook, and uh, the podcast will appear in uh, my Podomatic, iTunes, and Stitcher pages, as well as my blog site. So, anyway, I want to thank everyone for listening this afternoon. Now, uh, Chris, just I'm going to go to uh, number uh, five here to get to get Rivendell. Yep, hit pot. Hit pot.
2: Red, red, right here. It's hot. Rivendell's right there. Rivendell's
0: right here. here. Okay, and, um, and then wind this one down. And what do I click? Um.
2: Okay. Hold on a second. Yep. We'll go over here. We'll do a PSA. Right. So
0: you I, to okay. okay, and I did one earlier. So
2: okay, PSAs. PSA. We'll so find let's one that's for a minute. A minute. And say good night.
0: Good night, everybody. I shall return.
1: And if you're holding up five or more fingers, visit doihaveprediabetes.org or talk to your doctor. There's no excuse, because prediabetes can be reversed. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its Prediabetes Awareness Partners.
0: This is the news. This morning, we are saluting the 2.2 million women who have joined in the war effort. They now make up 37% of the workforce, changing their role forever.
1: The prestigious Harvard Medical School is breaking ground today opening its doors
0: to new female applicants. Today, little girls all over the world look to the sky where the first woman is now in space.
1: Military stereotypes are challenged today with the trailblazing promotion of a U.S. female officer to four-star general. It was just announced that the vast majority of last year's doctorate degrees were earned by women. We've come so far, but our news is changing for the worse. More women die from heart disease and stroke than men, even though it can be prevented. Make a change at GoRedForWomen.org today. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the American Heart Association's Go Red for Women.
0: Dear John, I was hoping it wouldn't come to this, but you've left me no choice. I'm leaving. Uncontrolled high blood pressure is really serious, and lately you seem to really not care. I've been there for you since day one, and I know you think I'm going to keep ticking. But no, my friend. I can quit whenever I want. Why can't we get back to the good times when we were more active and ate more healthy foods and you checked on me every once in a while. Is that too much to ask? I don't want to leave, but unless you stop ignoring me, what else am I supposed to do? Remember, when I quit, you quit. Sincerely, your heart.
1: Listen to your heart. Don't let it quit on you. Doing the minimum to control your high blood pressure isn't doing enough. High blood pressure can lead to a stroke, heart attack, or death. Get your blood pressure to a healthy range before it's too late. Find out how at heart.org slash bloodpressure. Check, change.